I'm Sylvan Drake. And I'm John Nedwell. Welcome to Episode 5 of the Weekend Write-In Podcast. The Weekend Write-In is a long-running writing group hosted on Wattpad and open to all writers. Authors write weekly flash fiction stories of 500 words or less based on a one-word prompt. This episode is special because the first four episodes, we recorded each side of an interview separately and then stitched together, if you will. Today, for the first time, we are recording together in a virtual studio. We're connecting Derby, England and Seattle, Washington, um, in order to talk with an Australian author. In this episode, we will interview Christine Larson before we hear about the almost unbearable love of her life. We will make difficult choices before welcoming an addition to the family. We'll help right the wrongs of a dead pirate. And think about what it might be like to be somebody else. And we'll struggle with murderous tendencies. And hear one story written especially for our podcast theme of renewal. And then there'll be absolutely no stitching the interview together. No, none, thank goodness. Just the stories and the music. Hello, Christine. Hiya, Christine. Hello. Lovely to be here. So, Christine, we all know you're from Down Under, and we know some of your history from your stories. Would you care to tell anything else to us? Oh, I think it's interesting that I was uh, brought up in the city, or a suburb, and um, became a, a farmer quite by accident in that I married a building contractor, and we moved to another state and went to work for eventually for a farmer friend to learn farming because that's what we both always wanted, the wide open spaces. That resulted in us becoming dairy farmers back in our own state of South Australia. And then we come to the writing bit, don't we? We do, yes. Well, I've always been writing since I actually could. Um, mostly lengthy and successful schoolwork back then. And then letters to everyone I knew, great, highly detailed accounts of life. You may never have guessed it from the way I write, John, but I'm really talkative. If you could have asked any of my teachers, <laughs> I heard you laughing. If you could have asked any of my teachers, they'd all tell you, great student, but Christine talks too much. Hmm, an unfortunate and misunderstood childhood, as you can see. But you want to know about my first sort of fiction writing? Yes, please. Uh, would you believe a, cha a children's story, a duck romance? Sadly, it was rejected everywhere, mainly because a famous Australian author had published a duck story that year and no one else would be getting a look in. Well, that's what I've always told myself. And the famous author bit is true, but sadly it wasn't me. The rejections were all too much for me, already wobbling dangerously in the self-belief business. Deciding I was no good, all creative writing was shelved for 30 years as I rescued furries, learned farming, milked cows and raised kids. Wow. Busy. <laughs> what, what brought you back to writing after 30 years? Okay. A friend lovingly bullied me into having a go on a new and different writing platform called Squidoo. Now defunct, but before it sank, I'd found my first niche. A whole stash of e-zine articles on another platform came next. And then I heard of Amazon's writing and finally had the courage to join. To my great amazement, 
some kind-spirited other authors actually enjoyed my words. And after that site too collapsed, I joined the majority of now good friends, migrating our words and skills to Wattpad. What what inspires you to write? What what's you know what sort of things catch your attention? <laughs> oh, that's funny, John. Everything, everywhere. You see, I have the curiosity of a cat, and the brain and attention span of a butterfly. So my creativity just happens, like twenty four seven. Which is how come I can so often be doing comments and that in my insomniac hours through the night when all the rest of the world is awake. Yeah, we've no- we've noticed you online at times when we think you really should be asleep. I, th- I think all three of us share a little bit of uh, <laughs> sleeping trouble. If you if you look at everybody's timestamps on Wattpad, it's it's ugly sometimes. What time we're awake? I think it's the curse of the creative mind. The ideas come and hello, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> I don't know about you youngsters, but um, us oldies have um, these like four-hour bladders, and that's where it all begins. You start simply, but then the ideas flow as well. No, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to cut that bit out. We may or may not. Uh, all right, so what would you be doing if you weren't, if you weren't a writer? I think I'd be up on cloud nine, really high in the sky, I've got it booked for all the authors because we've done our hell on earth bit. <laughs> Would you like to know what I like to write? What do you like to write? Thanks to the broad ranging experiences of genres and styles, especially on Wattpad, today I love writing flash fiction and short stories and memoirs. I have uh, one historical fiction and one young adult fiction on the go. And then there are a couple of planned collections of tales from two mates at a bar, you know them. Oh, yes. And a first, <laughs> and a first ever foray into a historical romance set in the Victorian era. Now, that's challenging for me. Sounds good. So, if people want to read more of your work, apart from Wattpad, where else can they find you, your books? Oh, I was going to lean on Wattpad heavily because it's all for free to read, you see, and you can see me just developing hopefully well in my writing field that is but now and then my conscience gets the better of me and I do some work on my website which is www.cdcrafty.com and that cd crafty is spelled c-d-c-r-a-f-t-e-e.com so Christine thank you very much for, for talking to us today it's been a pleasure John loved it Do I Love Thee? Written and read by Christine Larson, inspired by the prompt word, favourite. And then someone asked, but which doll was your favourite? Look at the photo, you're hugging two of them. And I looked and tried to remember and couldn't. Not one single doll's name. Huh? I blame it all on Ted Bear Esquire, the almost unbearable love of my life. We met when he was new and I was too. Shh! I know you've heard that line before. What can I tell you? It's one of my bestiest favourites in the world, just like him. And the love was instant. I should explain. Dolls of that century were not soft and cuddly or lifelike, rubbery and flexible. 
They were celluloid and hard plastic, and they had hard mechanical joints and gorgeous, trendy and fashionable dresses that demanded they never be creased. I remember one was a bride doll, representing the greatest aspiration for young ladies in those days. Another was nearly up to my armpit and could walk in stiff, robotic fashion with humongous help from me working her arms, which in turn worked her legs. Delightful to some. And she could talk. Mama, she'd say when you bent her forward. Mama, mama. Dumb broad didn't sound anything like a child crying for her mother. From my early days, there was also this homemade calico job with a drippy face, a kind of painted on one, if I remember rightly. She was well worn as far as my dolls went, embraceable in her fashion, I guess, certainly wide open to sucking and slobbering on, but still, no real inspirational bonding there either. But Ted, my wonderful darling honey bunch, always ready for a cuddle, to share a laugh, or faithfully hide secrets and fears, to absorb tears of all varieties, happy or sad, he wasn't fussed. His empathy was the most powerful. With never a word he comforted this small soul. His presence, tightly held within needy arms, soothed all, relaxed all, until sleep and sweet dreams replaced any disquiet. The dreams were naturally enough of sunny days in flower-studded meadows, a picnic rug with all manner of treaties spread before us, Ted and I having, wonder of wonders, a teddy bear's picnic. Interesting, that. How you never hear of a dolly's picnic. Tea parties, maybe. Ted and I were made for greater things, like dreams and sharing secrets and laughter and tears. All the important stuff. That was over seven decades ago, and whilst he hasn't shared my bed for the longest time, uh, there's this fellow called Old McLarson who strongly objects. Ted does have prime position in the small chair that was a fifth birthday present. He shares it with a bunch of other characters, and I believe most nights he tells his best love stories from our past. Haven't actually heard these, but sometimes when I'm busy creating wordy stuff in one of my insomniac hours, I'm sure I hear whispering and giggling from the other room. I've tiptoed in to check, but he always hears me coming, and though it only takes moments to get there, you could hear a pin drop when I pop my head around the door. The assumed innocence on Ted Bear's face and his glassy-eyed stare don't fool me. I've known him far too long. High Capacity by Lamplighter, 1890 Written for the prompt Argument John and Deb walked across the hot Texas asphalt of the Sears parking lot in silence. The humidity was high, as usual, and they were both sweating before John reached the door and pulled it open for his wife. The air conditioning felt good, and they both sighed as the cold air hit their bodies. John stopped, glanced over at his wife, and waited as she quietly put her sunglasses into her purse. She snapped her purse shut and silently asked herself why she didn't eat before they left. Deb walked over to the appliance section and began looking at the white, black, and almond washers and dryers. John watched as his wife looked over each model, 
then read the information printed on the stand-up card that was sitting on each machine. She knew John was concerned about the cost, since things were tight, and he was doing his darndest to keep ham on the table. But this was the cost of doing the right thing. The only thing, in Deb's mind. Hi, y'all. My name's Randy, and can I help you today? John looked over at Randy, nodded to him, then nodded towards Deb, thereby indicating to the salesman who was in charge. Yes, ma'am. And what y'all looking for today? All right, young man. I'm looking to buy a high-capacity washer and dryer set. John looked at Deb with a hint of surprise in his expression as he thought they were pricing, but she clearly moved the decision forward. Randy smiled and directed Deb over to the Kenmore display. You see, Randy, my smaller machine won't do because, well, I, I just need a bigger machine now, said Deb as she looked over the large front-loading washer. John wasn't thinking about washing machines or capacity. He was thinking about rooms, beds, and preparations. And then, of course, the strain it was going to put on his wife, or for that matter, on everyone. Then he heard Deb say the magic words and snap back into focus. These will do. Randy looked over at John and smiled. John responded by raising his eyebrows and giving a quick nod, which meant, show me the price. Does that include shipping? Randy hesitated. Well, I'm not sure. It needs to, or we can run over to Best Buy. Randy looked back at John, smiled, and said, Yes, sir. I believe we can arrange that. Deb looked at John and shook her head, then walked over to the check stand. She took out her wallet and thought he had a right to be disappointed, but he didn't have a right to be angry. Plans would have to change. There just weren't any alternatives. Randy finished ringing up the sale, smiled and handed Deb the receipt, and repeated the delivery date. Deb thanked him and walked off toward the exit. John nodded at the salesman and followed his wife out into the Texas heat. Dead Pirate Walking by Laura Mortensen, inspired by the prompt treasure. On Tuesday night, a dead seafarer pirate woke me up. I was having a pleasant dream about talking to Elvis. He was my mom's favorite performer and had agreed to autograph a CD for her when the cold feeling of a real spirit woke me. A large man with a long beard and mustache dressed as a pirate stood at the end of my bed. I was sure no real pirates had ever visited Seattle, let alone died there. Lassie, I need your help, he said. I have to get me treasure back to me little girl. I rolled my eyes and sat up in bed. Who are you, and why did you die dressed as a pirate? It was for Seafair. I find myself stuck in the role a bit. I had a heart attack at the Baranoff in Greenwood. My name's Patrick Wharton. The Baranoff is a dive restaurant in the Greenwood neighborhood of Seattle. I'd never been there, but I'd heard that the Seafair pirates hung out there after the neighborhood's parade. I had the feeling I was going to be visiting the place shortly. 
It never helped to ignore a ghost. What treasure are you talking about? What treasure could there be that wouldn't just go to your little girl, I asked. Well, you see, it's me lucky coin. Tis real gold, and as long as I've carried it, it's brought me good fortune. I died with it on a chain around me neck, and my supposed friend, Lucky Pete, stole it off my body whilst calling 911. You've got to be kidding me. That's a really low blow. Where is this guy now? He be still at the Baranoff. Since I was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital, my buddies went back to hold a wake. I got dressed and rode the bus to the Baranoff. When I got there, I found that the seafarer pirate's ship on wheels was parked outside the restaurant. The sound of men drinking and laughing carried out the open door. I thought for a moment about the best way to approach this. What does this guy look like? I asked Patrick. He'd be the only pirate wearing an eye patch, and he's got a false hook on his left hand. I messed up my hair and tugged on my blouse until my breasts were showing. I stepped inside the bar and waited for my eyes to adjust so I could spot Pete. He was at a large round table with the rest of the pirates. I approached them with my best sexy walk. You're lucky Pete, right? I'm your biggest fan. Could I talk to you alone for a moment, I asked. Ah, I'm always there for a pretty lass. Excuse me, mateys. We went out the back door to a parking lot that smelled of tobacco. Pete grinned at me and leaned in for a kiss. I pushed him and tried to make myself look bigger. Pete, I speak for the dead and you have taken what doesn't belong to you. He gaped at me. You're crazy, lady. He tried to get past me. I glanced at Patrick. He gathered all his energy and made some of the garbage fly up and pelt Pete in the face. The man went pale and looked like he was about to bolt. I grabbed his left arm and reached under his shirt to pull out the lucky gold coin. I'm going to give this to Patrick's daughter. I think you've been punished enough by knowing what you tried to do to a friend. I left Pete sobbing in the alley. It was moments like this that helped make my gift worth it. Righting wrongs for the dead was what being a necromancer was all about. Shell Game by John Nedwell Written for the prompt Decision It was a simple plan. All I had to do was make skin contact with my target. Then my little gadget would transfer my personality and memories into their body and theirs into mine. Outwardly, we would have been the same person, but inside, we would have been completely different. Nobody would be any the wiser, except for myself and my victim. I wasn't going to give the game away, and who would believe the obviously delusional rantings of a madman? I made my choice carefully. My new self would have to be somebody wealthy, but not enough that they would attract undue attention from the media. They would have to be without any close personal ties. I didn't want to arouse the suspicions of anybody who knew them well. Family, lovers, those sorts of people. Finally, my victim had to be somebody who could uproot themselves quickly and with a minimum of fuss. At some point I would have to break away from their old life completely and move on. It would be awkward if anybody decided to come looking for me. So, I contacted my victim and set up a meeting. I activated my device and shook hands with him. There was a brief moment of dizziness as the machine exchanged my mind with his. I was prepared for this, and so I recovered first. I quickly pulled my device from my, his, now hand, and left, ready to set forth on my new life. Unfortunately, my optimism didn't last.
A week had passed since I had successfully taken over my victim's body. I was relaxing in my flat, enjoying the undeserved fruits of my labour. When there was a knock at the door, there were two policemen waiting for me. Can I help you, officers? I asked. There was nothing for me to worry about. After all, nobody could even have suspected what I had done. Sir, one of the policemen began, we are placing you under arrest. He started to recite a litany of criminality, but I wasn't listening. Instead, my mind was reeling. Why hadn't I discovered my victim's wrongdoing? How could I have made such an awful mistake? What was I going to do about this? The only question I could answer was the last one. I surreptitiously activated my gadget and raised my hands. Guilty as charged, officers, I said. Put the cuffs on and take me away. Hi, I'm Tom Walborn. I wrote this story in November 2015 for the write-on prompt, Macabre. Here is The Demon Within. I look up because I heard a noise. I guess my nerves are on edge. The killing was easy. It is the aftermath that always bothers me. Should I clean it up and leave a puzzle? Should I proclaim my guilt and let my peers decide my fate? What I want you to understand is that I did not ask for this, this compulsion I have to murder, to feed on terror. I have never in my life wanted to hurt anyone until now. Now I spend my days scheming on how I will kill at night. I cannot help myself. I was a night person anyways, but this disease, this affliction, has only enhanced that to the point where morning light hurts my eyes. It is not true that we die in sunlight. It just makes us very uncomfortable. I resisted the change. I did, or tried to resist anyways. But once bitten, you cannot escape the consequences. I have read everything I can find about creatures like me. There is plenty of literature. It's hard to sort fact from fiction, but I suspect most of the fiction has a basis in truth. The stories are as old as civilization and as current as the internet. They say that we never die. We live on through our deeds. Some say a silver stake in the heart will kill us. I don't know. So I turn to the books and hope that someday, somewhere, I will find a cure. In the meantime, I can only lock myself in my home at night, try to do as little harm as possible. But still, I have to feed. I was a working guy once. I designed software, but now I just can't do it. People look at me strangely. They whisper behind their hands and keep their children close by. Maybe it is the way I watch them. Can they read my mind? I look at them and wonder, how would they die? Would they scream? Would they fight back? My next victim is a pretty young housewife. Two kids, a dog, a husband that works too much. She is lonely and I take advantage of that. I carefully plan her demise for maximum shock value. I live for that moment of horror, that moment of realization that there is no redemption, no rescue. If I do it right, she will never see it coming until it is too late. I am almost finished with her. Then, next week, who knows? I'll wait for inspiration. I must stop this, but I cannot. I need help. 
My mind races, my thoughts are crazy with the need to kill. I know there is no cure, but maybe, just maybe, there is a way to slow down. Maybe there is a support group for people like me, a place that serves coffee and assigned sponsors, where I can go and tell my stories without fear of condemnation. Hi, my name is Paul. I'm a writer. New Beginnings, written by D.M. Shawnee and narrated by Sobon Drake. Written for this podcast with the theme, Renewal. Slowly, his senses became aware of his surroundings. A movement of a toe and the twitch of a leg moves a few small grains of dirt. It's cold underground, but not uncomfortable any longer. A soft, familiar noise permeates through the soil, letting him know others were awake as well. Knowing life will not wait for him to move, he gingerly tests the muscles in his legs. They ache but respond against the loosely packed soil. Kicking with his back legs and moving dirt with his front legs, he inches forwards towards the sound. Every so often, he needs to stop to let his muscles relax, feeling the strain after being still for so long. However, he keeps moving, knowing it's only a little further. As he swipes away the soil, it begins to pack the sides. Water from the wet dirt pushes against his skin, giving a relief he hasn't felt in ages. He breathes in deeply, rejuvenated, to make this short and strenuous journey, then claws forward once more. Finally, the soil lifts away to reveal a slight breeze and the heat of the sunlight on his nose. Relieved he's almost out of the ground, he stops once again and lets his nose soak in the warmth. The sound of his fellow males calling out to silent females drives him onward, though. The ground gave way, revealing his whole head, but he was too quick to open his eyes to the world. The light was blinding at first, as it always was, but the warmth on his face made the pain bearable. While he sat there letting his vision clear, he began to recognize shapes and movements of the world he'd left behind. Nearby blades of grass were gently swaying with the wind still covered in water droplets from a recent rain. Thick branches lined with thorns were laced throughout the grassy area, creating a painful but useful barrier. The sun beaming down through the trees and the sound of water nearby made his heart thump faster. With a final heave, he rolled out of the soil tomb and back into the wet but warm world again. As the sunlight bathed his body, he could sense it changing from within. He felt stronger, full of energy, and alive, basking in its glow. A loud call broke his reverence. Somehow he knew that someone was in his territory. Full of life and years of experience, he darted down to the water's edge looking for the intruder. Just as he spotted the young male, it swam off, intimidated by the larger male's presence. The dominant male swam out to a nearby pad and climbed up. A large insect flew by, and on instinct he caught it. With a full belly, he felt bold and king of the world. All he needed now was a female. He opened his mouth and let out a mighty call so that all the ladies would know he's here and ready. Ribbit!
Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Weekend Write-In. For more episodes and links to more work by these authors, please visit our website at www.weekendwritein.wordpress.com. This episode, The Weekend Write-In website and e-magazine were created by Sovon Drake, host, executive producer and editor, John Nedwell, co-host and assistant editor, LML Gill, web design and e-magazine. The following music was provided by Fesslionsstudios.com, Slow Funny Music, used in How Do I Love Thee, Beautiful Memories, used in High Capacity, Unfolding Revelation, used in Dead Pirate Walking, Villainous, used in The Demon Within, and Powerful, used in New Beginnings. Let's get a drink at the pub. I hope Christine's characters Joe and Baz will be there. If we are, we're definitely in trouble. I'm buying. What do people want? G'day, Nettie, old mate. Love a beer, maybe a Vegemite dip for the peanuts. Vegemite, huh? <laughs> the sandwich has been done to death. <laughs> you know, this podcast still took a lot of time to stitch together. Well, I can help with some of this stitching business. I mean, how hard can it be? Ooh, here's a thread. Wonder what happens if I... Uh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. John, what are you doing? I think we're terrible actors. <laughs> <laughs> just... Well, we're not getting paid for this, yes. so we can be as terrible as we like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>